Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original. I'm James O'Hagan, and from LGBT Ireland, this is Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original podcast. You can find out more information about LGBT Ireland and the work which we do for older members of the LGBTQ community on our website, lgbt.ie. In this episode, I'm speaking with Eilish, a 68-year-old actress probably most well-known for playing Winnie McGugan, the dim-witted best friend of Agnes Brown, in Mrs. Brown's Boys, the sitcom created by her brother Brendan. Eilish had worked with LGBT Ireland on a few of our projects before, and had shared her story about coming out in an autobiographical one-woman stage show, which she had performed at the International Dublin Gay Theatre Festival and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So I had something of an idea of what to expect when I got to record with her. She's a natural performer. Chatting to her, she comes across as charismatic and sharp. She is absolutely a people person. Like everyone, she said she has found the past year tough mentally, and with acting and performing work shut down, she's found it hard to keep motivated. When we got to talk about her journey to coming out, she was honest and very open. We talked a lot about the importance of LGBTQ representation in the media to create role models so that people can see that they are not alone. Eilish started by telling me how when she was young, she wasn't even aware that women could be gay. So I actually grew up believing that it was only men that were gay because I'd never seen a representation of a woman at all. It had never been mentioned. The word lesbian had never been mentioned. So I didn't know it existed. And I had no deep-seated knowledge or awareness that perhaps I was a lesbian. I was living a life that I was brought up to, settle down and get married, have children and want to live happily ever after. Well, we all know life is not like that anyway. I did get married. And in fact, I married twice, just to be sure, to be sure. But women did not come into the equation at all. And I suppose that's why I went into a huge shock when it hit me, just gone 40, that, Jesus, I just might be a lesbian. How did you start figuring that out? I met a woman. It's as simple as that, James. I met her at a workshop. At that time, I was 40, obviously. And I was at that lovely stage where you go, what is life all about? What is my purpose? Why am I here? And so I went on this four-day workshop, Find Yourself Through Spirituality. Well, I didn't find myself. I found this woman instead. And I started off as friends, lovely friends. But after about two or three weeks, I realized in myself, the feelings I have towards this woman are, for want of a better word, not normal. In the context of time and where I was at in my life, that's how it felt. That in itself threw me into a terrible spin because I actually can't manage a day without talking to this woman. I can't manage a week without actually setting eyes upon her. So I began to question, you know, why am I feeling like this? Why am I physically and emotionally attracted to this woman? But I had to find a deeper meaning for that. To me, it meant that I had been living a lie, perhaps. I went to see a therapist first and foremost almost and said, look, I'm here because I think I'm actually going mad. And I have fallen in love with a woman. None of it makes sense to me, you know, and I can't talk to anybody about it. I can't tell anybody. Can't tell her. Can't tell anybody. So he said, well, you have to tell her. 
because I think what you're suffering from is transference. And he said to me, if you tell her, what will happen is your feelings will dissipate and they'll drop like a stone. Just tell her. So I did. I plucked up the courage. It took me about another year before I actually plucked up the courage. And I went and I asked if I could see her, told her not to say a word. I just wanted to kind of vomit emotionally all over her kitchen table. And I said, you know, when I'm finished, I appreciate that this friendship will have to come to an end or may have to come to an end. So I told her that I was in love with her. Yeah. She never said a word. And I remember hysterically growing home thinking, why are these feelings not dropping like a stone? He said, if I told her, I'd be better. I'd be cured. Right. So I went home and the next morning she phoned me. Could we meet for a coffee? And we did. And that's when she told me she felt the same way about me. So you can imagine, like, you know, you could hear the trumpets. You could hear the trumpets playing at that very moment when she said, I feel the same way about you. I'm sure I could hear a brass band going, hallelujah. But that then made it a reality from the point of view of, although we still hadn't started a relationship, this was now the next step. There was an acknowledgement. Yes, and it was acknowledged. So I actually did then tell my husband how I was feeling. And I have to say, he was an amazing, amazing support to me through all of that journey. There's an enormous amount of guilt associated with feeling, as you said at the beginning, kind of like you had you, you had been living something of a lie, when in fact you hadn't. You, it had been true in the time that you've been experiencing it. And being able to have a supportive partner who understands where you're coming from is so... I suppose that that would make your journey much easier, but also probably harder, harder in exactly, some ways as because well. Because I'm going... Don't be so nice. I'm I'm taking everything from you. I'm destroying what we had. And I mean, really honestly, I, you know, I said, I haven't stopped loving you. I haven't stopped being in love with you. But I just know that what I feel inside undermines all of that. It's not what you deserve. You deserve somebody who's totally 100% there. And I'm not. You can't put that back in a bottle. And I think it was probably a year later when I left. I literally just rented a room in in a house around the corner from where we live. Because I went through such a guilt process of how can I do this to my family? How can I leave my boys? How can I leave my husband? He deserves better than this. So I suppose on some level I was playing the martyr. I, I moved literally five minutes away so I could pop home every day and, you know, do a bit of hoovering and a bit of cleaning and less chance of them missing my absence, which of course was daft. Then I decided in my infinite wisdom that I would come back to Ireland. Now, I'd always wanted to come back to Ireland, but there was a different reason for it. You know, everything is is so clear on reflection, isn't it, James? You know, when you look back on on your behaviour and the things and the choices you make, the choice I made to come back to Ireland at that time was really driven by the fact that I needed to hide. I needed to run away because the relationship didn't work out, obviously. And I realized now that she was just the catalyst rather than the love of my life. But she was the catalyst and made me aware that, hey, there's a different part of you. There's a life you have not been living. How long did it take you to to embrace that LGBT side of yourself? Like, Did you explore the, the rest of that world or was it it's a very self-contained? Not initially. It was all very, very self-contained initially because by even attempting to explore that world, I was admitting something something to myself. And I wasn't ready to do that because I wasn't a lesbian, right? And and I couldn't even say the word lesbian. Now I proudly shout the word out lesbian. But at that time, you know, it came out, la, 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 la. oh God, I'm not a lesbian. I'm not one of them because I didn't look like them. And the only representation of lesbians I had at that time were big out butch lesbians 
God loved them, who paved the way for all of us because they weren't prepared to hide. They were prepared to embrace who they were. And for me, most of them looked like, you know, shaved heads, nose rings and so on and so forth. Again, but within the little knowledge that I had, that's how I perceive lesbians had to look like and that. I suppose your family would have always been involved in the arts, like there, yes. there would have been that connection. So I suppose there's a tip, there's an understanding that sort of that arts world is very accepting of LGBT yes. people. So would that have yeah. been there and it was more struggle within yourself about the fact that you were this person rather than a um, a prejudice against Oh, listen, I I think if I had managed to identify a lesbian within my own social group or within my work, my work environment, I would have been so happy because I probably would have attached myself to that person, even without confessing, hey, I'm one of you, just to feel like she hasn't died from it. You know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, she's living a life and she's not dead yet. But I, I think, James, for me, a lot of it was because of my own conditioning, religious conditioning, which, by the way, I was no longer a practicing Catholic, but all the demons came back to haunt me, right? That this was perverse. It was abnormal. You know, people have treatment for something. Electric shock treatment maybe is what I needed. I mean, just mad conversations in my head. And I, when I came back to Ireland, it was not to, to come out, although I realize now that's exactly what I did do. I came back to Ireland to run away from the pain that I had caused. I still felt terribly guilty about my husband and my sons. So the only way I could cope with it was to run away and hide. Now, I moved to West Cork initially in 97, but permanently then in 2000. Got to about 2001 and the loneliness began to outweigh the guilt for me. And I was tired pretending that I was just a divorcee uh, living alone in West Cork. And I needed to, to to step outside myself and explore whether I really was a lesbian. At that time, when I suppose you were making that decision, did it feel like an option to you to kind of say, well, I've been married twice before, I'll just ignore this and kind of, you know, I'll just ignore oh, this whole lesbian side of things. Absolutely, it was an option to me. I wanted to meet a man who would sweep me off my feet and put all this to bed. And yet I found I didn't want to be in men's company, never mind meet a man. Because whilst my very first relationship didn't last, what I did come away knowing that I had come home, this was the closest thing to me I had ever been in my life. Yes. You said the loneliness started to outweigh oh, the guilt. And I think absolutely. that that's such a, a brilliant metaphor for, I think, how probably an awful lot of gay people, particularly from, from your generation, probably have ended up coming out because at a yes. certain point, that need for companionship and that need and that want for love just like outweighs oh, and it becomes an ignorable. Yes. And to know that you are being totally honest about who you are, right? And before before I had come out myself and I went to watch the Pride Parade and I watched these women and I watched their faces and I watched their joy and I thought, oh my God, I want to feel that. I want to have the courage one day to do that. And I came home and I opened a bottle of brandy, got terribly drunk. And I suppose it was that moment when I thought I could stay here in this little cottage for the rest of my life and had a light bulb moment when it said, well, today is the day. Today is the day. They ain't going to come knocking on your door. I had to actively get out and do it. So I used to travel up to Dublin on day trips and sometimes I'd stay a couple of days and I'd go into every restaurant that had a rainbow flag. Jesus, when I think of it, 
I was one sad bitch. And I go, there, have to be, there has to be lesbians in here having a coffee. So anyway, after weeks of wishing that somebody would come over while I was having a coffee and introduce themselves and say, hi, I'm Mary. I'm a lesbian. You look like a lesbian. Would you like to join our club? Right. That <laughs> didn't happen, right? So what I did was I phoned the gay helpline and a lovely, lovely young man answered. And of course, I just pretended I was an out lesbian. I said, look, I'm looking to see what's happening in the area. He said, there is an organization in Cork called Link. And it's the only women's centre in the whole of Ireland. So again, I waited weeks before I got the courage to call up to Link. And I met these two lovely women there, only to be told that unfortunately they were actually moving premises and that any discos that they had had stopped. But they were going to a new premises. And would I be interested in joining the lesbian helpline. Sure, says I, as if I was a fully-fledged lesbian. Of course I'll, of course I will. So I wait, six months goes, and I get a phone call saying, the training actually starts next week. Are you coming up to do it? And I said, yes. And that was my very first step to the lesbian world. I mean, you jumped right in at the very deepest end. At the deepest end. I mean, imagine, here I am. Yeah, I'd be very good for lesbians on the lesbian line because I still couldn't, I couldn't get the word out. I couldn't say. But once that happened, once that that was lifted off my shoulders, and once I was accepted, you know, you have come home to your tribe. And the journey then started. I think within six months of that, I was able to go over and, and tell my boys. I had to sit them down and say, look, I am a lesbian. And this is why I have literally been, been a complete and utter mess for the last five years. I'm not sorry for being a lesbian, but I am sorry that I didn't handle it better. How did they react to that? When I eventually, we got it out over dinner, just the three of us, they both remained totally silent. And my eldest boy looked at me and he said, well, I have to tell you, mum, I'm extremely angry with you. And I had said to myself before the dinner, I said, whatever you do, do not cry tonight. Do not disarm them emotionally. And I thought, here it comes. And I thought, well, he's not happy about me being a lesbian. That's okay. And I said, well, do you want to tell me why you're so angry? And he said, yeah. He said, I'm angry because he said, you never gave us the opportunity to be there for you, to tell you we loved you and it made no difference to us at all. And he said, so my anger is because you robbed us of the opportunity for us to show you how supportive and how lo- how much we loved you. And I thought that was beautiful. How long did it take you to feel, I suppose, proud? Because it's, it's come through strongly in, in chatting to you that, that you now are very proud of your identity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that you fiercely believe in in the need to to I suppose to to fight for that inclusion. How long did it take you to get to that place? Ten years. Now, not ten years to come out, but ten years to really, really accept and get over the guilt and over the shame that one is forced to feel to get over all of those. You know, what's wrong with me? You're afraid to say I have, you know, partner, she's a woman. You censor what you say. You censor your stories. And you're censoring yourself. You know, it's so tragic that we do that to ourselves. And I'm so happy that the world has changed in my lifetime. And I know it'll take time to change people's attitudes. I know that. But at least for young people now, there's a a level playing field for them now. And of course, one of the reasons why younger 
younger people today do have that that more level playing field is because people such as yourself decided that they would be very open about sharing their stories um, and I suppose letting people understand the experience of an LGBT person talking openly ab- about the journey to self-acceptance. Um, you had a, a one-woman show, Live, Love, Laugh, which you produced and toured for, for, for many years. What was that experience yeah, like? And- you know what was lovely? When I wrote Live, Love, Laugh, it was before the success of Mrs. Brown's Boys because it actually went out in 2013, I think, was the first time I did it. I remember Brendan saying to me, we all have to be very careful, he said, when it comes to success, he said, because, you know, newspapers, or they'll have stories on you. And I remember saying to him, look, I'm doing a play which has been picked for the Gay International Theatre Festival. And he went, oh, Jesus, he said, no, he said, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't tell them, you can't get up there and tell them you're gay. And I said, that's exactly what I'm going to do because you just said that the newspapers are going to cover it anyway. They'll find whatever they want to find on you. And I said, well, they can sod off because I'm telling my story. I'm controlling the narrative. And as a result of that, I tell you, I was besieged with interviews and all they wanted to talk about was me coming out. And, and initially, I was happy to tell the story, but it got to a point, honestly, James, where you get not another fucking gay story. I can't be doing with this because there's more to me than being a lesbian. There's more to me than being Winnie McGugan. There was more to me than being a mother. I don't define myself purely as a lesbian. I'm a lesbian and I'm proud of it. But when you have to tell the same story, it begins to lose the importance of that journey. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, I'm not getting across to you the depth of emotion and feeling and fear and joy and all of it, because I'm I'm saying it too many times. It's like I've learned a script, but I... I'm hugely proud of myself for doing it. I'm hugely proud of myself for for telling the story. I'm hugely proud and I continue to do the play because it resonates with a lot of people on so many different levels because I don't just talk about being a lesbian. I also talk about marriage and marriage is failing and getting older and all that. And I talk about internalized homophobia and a lot of people relate to it. And and as a result of that, I, but I got some emails from men who thought their wife might be lesbian, whose wife had just left left them for another woman and could I give them any advice and I thought oh people were listening people were listening do you rework that as you go or or would you would you start again and build another one to do funny you should say that because I was actually dreaming about it last night and I mean that's a great story in itself as it is as it stands but of course I remember my son saying to me you know, he came to see it in, in I think we played in, in the Black Box in Trinity College and he came, flew over to see it. And, you know, and I'm full of apologies to him. I said, you know, I'm really, really sorry. There was a lot of stuff in there which was very kind of might have upset you, but I couldn't edit it. It was just the way it is. And, and he said, Mum, stop worrying about it. He said, everything you said I knew about anyway so that's not a problem and I said um, you know because I can change it he said no he said mum he said all you have given people is a snapshot of your life that's all now he said you will write another story in 10 years time because your life will have changed so much and he's dead right so I would like to do another one I'd like to keep this one going but I'd also like to do you know live love laugh part two
While everyone's experience is different and everyone's journey through life is unique, there are a common set of issues which we all face at different times or which impact certain groups of people at different times in their lives. I chatted with clinical psychologist and head of the Department of Psychology at St. Vincent's University Hospital, Dr. Paul Dalton, about a few of these more common issues, how they affect people, where they have come from and what we can do to confront them. The Catholic Church and the Irish state used shame as a powerful tool of control, creating a shame-based society where generations of women, LGBTQ people and people from many other marginalised communities endured punishment, violence and exploitation. Paul spoke to me about the legacy that this has left behind and how people telling their stories can contribute to diminishing the power which shame can hold. The thing about shame is, it's about all of me. It's not about my behavior. It's about who I am as a human being. So it is so insidious. It's such a sinister emotion. And the tool that has been used to control women and minorities in this country, it basically conveys to people that you're a failure, you're flawed, there's something dirty, wrong, or inferior about you. And for a large part, that much of the teaching of Catholicism, much of its theology is based on shame and an understanding that humans are essentially bad and in need of redemption. The body is dirty, sex is sinful. These things have huge uh, legacy for us psychologically and emotionally. In terms of what do we do about that, we know from the research that shame loves silence. Shame loves secrets. So once we begin to break the silence around shame, that's when shame begins to loosen its grip on us. So we have seen this in our own little country over the last couple of decades, people telling stories, be that about coming out, sexual orientation, gender, abortion. People have been telling stories. And when we tell, when we name, shame begins to lose its power. Ireland's changed massively in the past 20 or 30 years. How does seeing this new Ireland make you feel, particularly as someone who left Ireland when you you were very young um, and came back to it at a very vulnerable time in your life? How do you reconcile that with, I suppose, the experience you had in your youth to what exists now? And do you wish, I suppose, that you'd had you'd been able to experience this time? Came back at a very vulnerable time, you know, for me, and at the cusp of change as well. I'm so appreciative of the change. I haven't said that. There's an awful lot that we've lost from those days that I wish we still had. But yeah, I think certainly my journey would have been a lot easier. I wouldn't have felt that my only choice was to get married, I would have, you know, would have been living in this ideal world where the choices, you know, I had as many opportunities as my brothers. And I was encouraged to go down those roads. It was so different, you know, and and we still have huge amount of changes to make in Ireland. I mean, women are still marginalised in a a huge degree. There's not enough power or action taken for women in abusive relationships or men in abusive relationships. And there really is not enough support. There's still huge inequality for women as far as wages, opportunities, careers. So it's still in our DNA, so to speak. It's still in the psyche of the community, right? It's changing, but it's certainly not changing 
quickly enough for me. You know, we're all a result of our experiences in life and our perception of life at that time. The perception of when we were kids, when something was going wrong in the house, how I perceived it, how my brother perceived it, probably two very different memories, but they would still dictate my thinking as I got older as well. And it's only life that, you know, and your experiences throughout life that can change your thinking or your awareness to know that, hey, actually, these really are not my thoughts. These are somebody else's thoughts. Like when I was going through punishing myself for being gay, that wasn't me, right? That wasn't fucking me. I wouldn't punish anybody for being gay, right? So, you know, when I when I realized that and I thought, did you just, you have to change your thinking process. Where did you get that from? I had to dig really deep for that. I probably was about three or four when I was getting the Our Father sprinkled on me cornflakes. That feeling of that feeling of shame or of guilt that actually isn't you. That's just what an, another version that's been told to of you that, that you have to indulge. Yeah. So reflecting yes. on your your LGBT identity now as you as you age, like where are you now with it? I suppose where I am with it now, I'm totally free of any guilt. Yes, have I regrets? Of course I have regrets. I regret the way I managed it and handled it. I regret not talking to my sons. I regret not saying as soon as I felt it, hey, guess what, guys? I'm in love with a woman. Not to be ashamed of it. This is normal. I've just discovered I've fallen in love with a woman and I want to do something about it or I don't want to do something about it. To be free of any kind of censorship in my head or any kind of judgment, pre-judgment before I even open my mouth and just to be able to say my truth and to be able to be allowed the privilege of expressing that. Now I have that. I have that privilege, but I gave myself that privilege because society took it from me and I took it back. Are there still demons or or are there still kind of like elements of that fear or guilt or shame that you are still working through now? Absolutely, James. Absolutely. And I think I'll be working through them for the rest of my life. I mean, as I say, I still have the demons in my head, but nine times out of 10, I win. But they're still there. They were put there over such a long period of time in my youth, from the time I could absorb information. As I say, I'm not a practicing Catholic. Do I believe in something greater than myself? I do want to. Do I believe in in the power of universal energy? Absolutely, 100%. Am I terrified of dying? Absolutely. It keeps me awake at nighttime. And when I dream about it, I dream that I will go to hell, knowing on an intellectual level, on some level in my brain, hell does not exist, neither does heaven. The only thing we have is life. Yes, and that's what to invest in. Absolutely. And the only thing I have any control over is me. I have not control over anything else that happens in the world. If I want to make changes, I have to make the changes. It is a constant work. You walk into a new room or a new space, there's still that yep. like, weight or heaviness of like, right, I have to do this again. And it's not really a case of when did you come out? It's a case of like, how long have you been coming out for? Absolutely. You know, when I go to a doctor, I have a new doctor now since I moved to Dublin. And I remember sitting there just talking about my health issues and so on and so forth. And I thought, do I tell him I'm gay? He's not going to tell me if his partner is a man. Why do I feel it's necessary? But I do question whether it is my fear or my homophobia that doesn't let me say it. 
And I think it isn't a case of every room you walk into, you need to say, I'm a member of the LGBT community and wear it like a badge. That's not what it is about at all. It's about the false yes. things that just highlight I mean, the, the difference. But that definitely is changing. You know, if, the, if people were reluctant to disclose that they were in a, a same-sex relationship, perhaps they wouldn't feel so now. They're encouraged by example. And I think it's great to see that education infiltrating and becoming part of their daily language. And, and, you know, the more you use it, it's a bit like using the word lesbian or homosexual. The more you use that word, the more acceptable it becomes. You mentioned earlier on that you had fairly set ideas of like what constituted a a lesbian. When and how did you kind of challenge those stereotypes yourself? So I remember I had some friends, obviously, straight friends in West Cork. They're a little bit more than neighbours. They're actually friends and they I need to tell them because I knew that my partner would come down at some point to West Cork and the dogs in the street would know she was a lesbian, right? So I thought, I have to come out here. And I said to her, I don't want to introduce you as a friend. And I said, and besides, you know, you, you kind of look like a lesbian. And she goes, I've never looked any different my whole life. And that's when I realized, and I thought, here, I've been judging with my eyes. In my eyes, she ticked all the boxes. She's sure of herself. She's in her own skin. She's fresh. She looks athletic. She looks all of those things. It's interesting to hear that your interpretation of what a lesbian is is all those positive descriptors, like kind of athletic, oh, yes. confident. Like that's, that's what you, and I suppose then, is that somehow part of what you felt you were lacking? Oh, totally. So much to the point I had my hair cut really short. I had the jeans and the big bother boots on and I had the check shirt and I started rolling my own cigarettes. I'm a real lesbian. This is what I thought a real lesbian is. But yeah. you have to look the part. And of course, learning curve for me, no, you don't. We come in all checks and sizes. We're so used to as a society judging with our eyes. And I had done this to, to my loving partner. I assumed she was happy in her skin and she was out. She was far from it. First time I met her was the very first time that she walked into Lynn. You make an assessment of a person and this happens happens in a negative and in a positive way. And I think that happens within the LGBT community an awful lot. Hugely. And I think to our detriment, actually more to their detriment, it's unfair because we're already putting them into a box that they don't fit in. I don't jump to those conclusions anymore. I don't assume. I don't even assume when I'm at one of the the award nights that everybody in that building is gay. Of course I don't. Yes. What is something that you think mainstream Irish society needs to know about the experience of older LGBT people? Because it is an issue that's often looked at as a youth issue. So it's not a population who gets a huge amount of airtime. Well, you see, the older generation is not a population that gets a huge amount of airtime, full stop. True. (laughs) And I feel very strongly about that, right? You know, that suddenly you become an age and, and you're supposed to become invisible. Well, feck off, right? <laughs> and it's a, it's a bit like during the, the fight for equal rights for women in the 70s and the 80s, for fair wages and all this, and certainly contraceptive in Ireland. The women that led that campaign were primarily lesbians, but they could not and no way could they fight for anything for themselves as lesbians until such time as women had equality. And the next step would be, now I'm a woman, I'm I'm a lesbian. Now I want equality for that. And I think it's part of the process that we're going through now with older generation and older gay people. The same thing is happening until the mainstream, until they stop seeing us as full stop older people as invisible and have less to contribute. It's hard then to say, how can we give them a voice? 
It's interesting that you said that about about seeing as having had less to contribute, because I do think that that's a huge part of it is that society is built around the people who are seen to be contributing most to it. And if you are a person who belongs to a marginalized group, if you have a disability or if you are older or if you need more care, then there's a sense of you're sidelined and and you are stripped somehow of of some of the things like you aren't seen as a sexual being. You aren't seen as a person who deserves an education or who needs an active social life. It's kind of a case of we'll tolerate you, but we won't accept you. Absolutely, we'll tolerate you, but we won't include you. That's how I feel their attitude is. I've got to an age now where I realise that I'm the same way I felt as as a young woman, that my voice wasn't being heard, that I was being asked questions at interviews for jobs that I knew my male counterpart didn't have to answer those questions. So I feel the same way here now. It's like, you know, I'm not over the hill. I'll tell you when I'm over the hill. You don't tell me when I'm over the hill. I have more to contribute, I think, because of my life experience than I've ever had to offer. But it seems to be like when we're not interested anymore. And how do we change that culture? We'll not change it until we see older people as a whole human being. It, it goes right through society that they go, well, you know, somebody's going to sit and write a script or write a really good story. Most of the movies, as you well know, don't have older people in them. And if they are in them, they're in a wheelchair or they're about to die anyway. Yeah. So. <laughs> So, you know, where I want to see the warriors out there, you know. Completely. Just like we need to stop seeing the LGBT character pigeonholed as the camp gay man or the butch lesbian. We need to see the older person not being left just seen as this fragile person who needs to be taken care of. But when it comes to uh, older people within the LGBT community, what can we do better for them? I suppose acknowledging that they are there, providing some sort of outlet for them to meet. You know, older people have a huge amount of contributions to still make. And even if they're just telling their own story, their own journey to a younger group, how inspiring can that be? How informative can that be? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's come through the strongest in recording this series of podcasts is how important it is for people to share their stories and how people really want to be heard and also like how much people can learn from listening to the experiences of other people but looking back I suppose at your own journey and 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 your own life what stands out to you now? I was very blessed and I know I was very blessed in the husband that I had I was very blessed in the children that I have and the support that they continue to give me and I am also very blessed with the friends and the connections that I made through my journey and I, they would never be in my life if I wasn't a lesbian. So I'm going, hey, I'm not changing this status for anybody because I absolutely adore these women, you know, and I adore, I adore the, the whole community, the whole LGBT community. We, we still have changes to make and we still have improvements to, to achieve for. What are your hopes for the future? As you as you're aging now, you're moving into a period of life where you're you're much more settled in yourself and you're much more confident in yourself. Oh, I hope that I will um, wake up every morning feeling really healthy. Um, I'm I'm trying to ignore lockdown. Um, I hope I can continue to do the things that I love doing. It's keeping positive, keeping your chin up and, and having a reason for getting up in the mornings. Yeah, and I hope I get to hug somebody before I die.
Eilish was no stranger to sharing her own story. She had stood in front of crowds in theatres around Ireland and the UK, reflecting on the impact of her strict Catholic upbringing, her failed marriages, as well as coming out as a lesbian. She said that she firmly believes, for her, the absence of relatable representation of LGBTQ role models had delayed her ability to accept who she was, and she hopes, through sharing her experiences, she might help someone else. She credits accessing the services provided by LINK, a community resource centre for lesbians and bisexual women in Cork, as being a turning point for her, and as someone who has both accessed the LGBT helpline for support and worked at one time on the other side of it, she stressed how important it is to access the mental health supports which are there. In recording the interviews for this series, it's remarkable to me that despite the breadth of experience and the difference of the lives lived by the eight individuals who participated, there's one area of consistency. Each and every one said the same thing, that the most important thing that we can do to become a more compassionate and inclusive society is listen to the stories of those of experienced marginalisation and face discrimination. So thank you for listening to this episode of Invisible Threads. For more information about LGBT Ireland, the National Support Service for LGBTQ People and the work which we do for old members of the LGBTQ community or to donate to help us continue our work, please visit lgbt.ie. If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode and need to talk, LGBT Ireland operate the National LGBT Helpline, which is available on 1890 929 539. We have also included details of other organisations that offer advice, support and information in the show notes. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. This project has received funding from the Government of Ireland's Launchy Care Integration Fund 2019.